So this afternoon, you, Dr. Koontz, would like to talk about some general philosophical things. Yeah. I think that's a good place to start. Why would we do that? We've been having such a rollicking time. I know. We would do that because we need to help people move forward uh, as well as look backward. Um, People get overwhelmed by, I think, both the parallels between the past and the present but also they get overwhelmed by the the rush, the onrush of news and information that is probably just a mental hamster wheel. But I want them to kind of step back and be calmer in their minds. And I think there are ways to do that, but they're not, they're not discussion of, you know, specific events in history or today or something right now. So I said in the last episode, you know, we'd be laying out some, some positive things for the future. And in order to do that, we have to step kind of way back and begin to talk about some things that have to do with people's attitudes or their sense of how they're positioned relative to mainstream opinion. And so that's what we're doing today. So how is that different than what we've been doing? Because I, I think, or let me just say, how is what we've been doing different than philosophy? If we're going to move to philosophy yeah. from what we've been doing isn't history itself and just trying to figure out what the actual story is kind of the heartbeat of philosophy? Philosophy and history are interrelated, but they are distinct in this way that the one of the founding figures of Western philosophy, Plato, part of the reason that he is so pivotal, both regarding what we know about the people that came before him and his interpretation of them, especially Socrates, but even before that, and everyone who comes after him where, you know, a scholar can go on to say later, everything is a footnote to Plato. The reason that Plato is the way he is, is because of very specific historical circumstances. Those specific circumstances are really the collapse of his state as anyone has imagined it, which is, um, which is fifth century going into the fourth century Athens. And Plato takes a different tack than some contemporaries or near contemporaries who sought to be intensely engaged in a decadent Athenian political process in hopes that they could turn it around. So now help me with this a little bit. I was just pondering this this morning too. Plato's a bit of a, like not a boogeyman, but like a legend, right? Like I remember picking up his Republic, uh, I had to be 19. I'm like, I'm going to read this on the toilet. Some, you know, over, over the course of a lot of time, I think I maybe got, you know, 30 pages into it or something. Yeah. And yeah. I got, uh, he, er, all history is a footnote to Plato. Uh, every philosophy book, it's a footnote to Plato. So that totally makes sense to me. Yeah. Why is Socrates a real person? Is he a foil? Yeah. Why does he use Socrates as his figure? Just kind of dovetail from that question into further of what you were just saying and uh, yeah. take it the next step. Socrates, Socrates was a real person, the degree to which... Plato is reporting things that Socrates really thought, said, and did, you know, can be doubted, but he was a real person and Plato is not trying to lie necessarily. And there's not a, there's not a great way to know how much he's embellishing or how much is Plato's doctrine in Socrates mouth in the dialogues. But the reason that things are set up the way they are is so that the notion of truth is not too, too tightly attached to Plato as a figure. Mm. And that is significant because it means that Plato sees himself within a historical succession. He's not alone in his thoughts. It also means that the truth is the truth, even if Plato dies. So what Plato sees to be Socrates' martyrdom for the sake of the truth, being unjustly accused and then dying, is by his own hand, but, you know, in order to avoid a worse death, that's the idea. The unjust death of Socrates means that truth and regimes are two different things. They mm. can agree with each mm. other, but they don't have to. And in Plato's Athens, they don't agree with each other. And Socrates is sort of the image of that then, of yes, his exactly. collapsing state at the present time. Right, right. And so can I also just throw in then, in some ways, he becomes who he is for that for that reason but then this is also the first time that someone is observing such history in a way that is not just recording the history maybe with the exception being the bible um i think you could make that case uh you maybe you can make the case for some of the more ancient uh, hindu scriptures or something but uh, on the world stage this is kind of taking a step up in terms of not just I did this, I did this, but this happened and now we can't be the same anymore. I mean, that's not normal ancient 
anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, part of the massive significance of the Greeks, even before Plato, is that like the, the ancient Hebrews, they narrate history without themselves at the center of it necessarily. So the concept over, you know, that, that is overarching is going to be different, obviously, between Herodotus or Thucydides versus, you know, First Samuel. But the idea that the way that things are is not necessarily the divinely intended way that things should be hmm. in, 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 includes this distinction, which then becomes much more explicit in the Republic, which is why the Republic is sort of utopian, because Plato is longing for a different kind of a commonwealth, a different kind of regime, because truth and regimes are not the same thing. I don't want to leave Plato, but I want to, you just mentioned something that'll connect to someone we'll bring up later saying what is, is not what should be on your advice. I picked up a copy of alien nation uh, yeah. by this, uh, this young writer you'll be talking about whose name again is going to escape me. Um, but that was one of the main ideas he said at the start of that book is this is an assumption he has as a Darwinist that what is, is not as it should be, especially in human society. Right. And I think it's too easy to go by that thought and, think uh, Lutherans, I think we have this in Romans seven. We, we kind of beat it into ourselves that there's something wrong with the world, Yeah, but it's a pretty profound idea to operate with say a governance policy mindset on like, how are you going to handle things? If you believe that the world is not as it should be. And that's kind of a, a fact. Right. And there is a sense in which James LaFond, who's the guy that you're referencing the vision that he presents and he's laying out this as it, as things always are with him really well written, but really despairing vision of the next 20 to 30 years in America. He's doing that kind of in an ongoing way at the American sun. And I think part of the reason that it's so hopeless or part of the reason that Plato's longing in the Republic, he goes elsewhere and actually gets into honest to goodness theology, like in the Timaeus. So this isn't where Plato stops. But if you don't have the capacity to do theology because of other thoughts that you have, you don't believe in God or the gods or something. If you don't have the capacity to think theologically, you don't really have the capacity to be hopeful for anything other than a revolution that would bring in a completely different regime. And Plato's vision in, in the Republic would end up with an Athens that looks a heck of a lot like Sparta. <laughs> so so because, tie, tie, yeah. tie those knots together then. Tie those knots together well, a little the bit. The reason it looks that way is because that's the best that Plato can think of. That's the best that he can do. And, you know, I certainly don't blame him for that because the the capacity to be hopeful about human regimes, my capacity for human regimes is is pretty low because the most profound philosophy is in the Bible and the Bible recognizes a wide gap, not just inside the individual as in Romans seven, but really throughout the history of humanity, which the Bible is trying to tell you about. It's, it's a universal history. That gap between what should be and what is, is always going to be there. The only hope that I have is that the gap wouldn't be so wide in my grandchildren's lifetimes as it is in my own. Yeah, so what should be, in theory, is that the king would protect the people. Now, there's something about like even that one, like what's a king's job protecting people in a perfect place for? Like it's not quite – like something's different there, right? But but leaving that one behind, just knowing that the role of a king, a leader, a protector, a protector is what it is historically. People gather together and build walls historically to protect themselves from someone who is a worse protector, basically, uh, yeah, a yeah. more violent protector. And so you come together and you hope in your regime, mainly because there's another potential regime. And yeah. everyone kind of knows this. this is why we lock our doors at night, right? all that kind of stuff. And yet we don't apply it to, say, social policy. We don't apply it to um, you know, political uh, thinking. In fact, we're told to keep these kind of thoughts away from things right. like political thinking. Right. Uh, and it's what it's leading to is lawlessness that cannot be stopped. And, and James LaFon's, uh view of, of despair, I don't blame him because he lives in Baltimore. I mean, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, I had a good ale in Baltimore once, I will say. Resurrection Ale, they had a crucifix on the tap. It was it was surreal. It was surreal. Yeah. But but yeah. from what I hear, Baltimore is not really even a city. It's more like 
I don't know, DC's basement or something. I'm not sure. I mean, Lafon talks about his native city constantly as simply a war zone. That (laughs) is, when people think of what is it like to live in northern Nigeria, Baltimore is what it's like. (laughs) And it's a place where everyone has been forgotten and all the forgotten people have to live with each other. So that that I mean, he he can see the difference because he has a basic attachment to observing reality. And I would say that and I, and I want to talk about that more because I want to talk positively, but to state it negatively, our regime is much more not like a Greek regime or the ancient Israelite kings. Our regime is much more like ancient Egypt or ancient Babylonia, where you are not allowed to notice that the regime is not divine. And even if the regime changes the terms of service (laughs) all the time, and now things that were fine three seconds ago are outlawed and evil, and you will go to a living hell forever if you say them or think them. Bow down to this statue or we're going to put you in this furnace. Just kind of feel like it today. You know, it's it's my birthday. Yeah, right, right. I'm God. um, I'm king. You know, right. Exactly. The regime cannot recognize that there is any distinction between what it says and what the truth is. And if you notice things that are inconvenient or not allowed to be noticed, you are evil and they are good. So we're we are dealing we are living under a regime that is much more ancient Middle Eastern than anything that Plato had to deal with. Plato could go just outside his native city and teach the truth. So there was nothing like Baltimore in Philadelphia. I mean, not Philadelphia. Nothing like Baltimore in Plato's, <laughs> in Plato's, uh, yeah. Plato's Greece. Parts of Philadelphia. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the difference is that... I mean, there's less people. There, there, there are fewer people. There, there are some parallels in the sense that you get you get economic elites who begin to live, especially in Athens, more for themselves than for their own people. There, there, are, there are parallels because democracies tend to have the same kinds of cancer as each other. Right. But one difference is that the native population, whether in Baltimore or in you know, Nebraska, is not despised and maltreated in quite the same way that we treat Americans today for the benefit of whatever, you know, the ruling class is going to be. Right. Whatever, whatever the next joke's got to be, usually. I don't know. Yeah. We're, we're ruled by cynics at the end of the day. It's the comedians who are our prophets. That's a different tangent, though. So let's talk about openness to reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, That's... Aren't, we, aren't we just obviously? right i i think that i think this is this is related to the stuff that we talk a lot about with like media ecology but in a way it's kind of deeper and more preliminary and would exist even if we didn't really have much of a media to speak of and that is that philosophy as plato begins to teach it is not an academic subject it is literally the love of wisdom And it means that the things that you're spending your waking hours thinking about, whatever your occupation is, right? It's not an occupation. It's a, it's an approach to living. The things that you're spending your waking hours thinking about are things that are observable either in the world or in other people or in oneself or in Plato's case about the gods. And that means that you are just sort of open to whatever may be, even if it severely critiques you or the regime or other people or whatever. And that is the sense in which when you see Socrates talking, he often comes off as irritating or uncomfortable for people. So it it makes me think of, I mentioned the comedians a moment ago, but it also is, there's a lost hat in our world called the poet. And this overlaps with philosophy a lot too. And the role of the poet, the role of the comedian, the role of the philosopher in Plato's sense then is – that is just that. It's prophetic, not as in future telling, but is in making you face what's in front of you, uh, saying it the way that it is. Mm -hmm. And we would seem to live in a time where there's no such thing. You got gangster rap. That's the closest thing in poetry that I'm aware (laughs) of. That really is doing something to the culture right now. I mean, you got poet laureates, whatever. I mean, no, they're not. They're not impacting anybody. Yeah, no one knows. Yeah. No one knows this, who that is. is. Dead. It's gone. Uh, right. But and so you know, Eminem. I mean, he can he can sling it together pretty quick. 
you know, how how much is this benefiting the existential understanding of young men in the hood and or the the suburbs? Probably not as much as it could, although, you know, I've listened. It could be worse. But the point, again, being that we live in a time where you can't – there is no poetry. How would there be philosophy? Who's going to spend time thinking about what you talked about when they don't realize – well, one – they don't think they're thinking or they don't think they have time to think because, in fact, they don't have time. And you want to be hopeful. Yeah. I think hopefulness has to start with making time or maybe realizing right. time doesn't exist until you have wasted it, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and, that, and that has to do with something that is a lesson a lot of people don't learn until later or, or sometimes too late in life or within the context of a single set of relationships, maybe with your parents or your children. And that is that you are taught by everything in our culture to value money over all else. And that, mm-hmm. is one, that is one of the particular vices of democracy, not just in the Republic, but in many other people's observations, that money takes priority over everything because it's what moves power around inside things that are ostensibly democratic polities. The problem with that on an individual level, so political and personal problems are very much interrelated, like we were talking about with Romans 7 and how that should reflect how we think about regimes. It's also the case with money. So people living in such a system that is run in such a way will tend to think that money is a lot more valuable than time and therefore will spend their time chasing money. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is that wisdom actually comes with time, both a certain amount of life experience doing something or being something, but also simply with, and this was a really great point that somebody made in our, uh, on our uh, Discord channel this week, is how much time people in like 19th century novels spend right. thinking about an interaction from like four days prior. And it's not that they're stewing over it, but they're just <laughs> devoting so much more, let's say like energy to thinking about how to get along with someone else, for instance. And that is in its own way, much more valuable for say the next 10 years of your life. If you actually spend that much time figuring out what to do about your relationship with your sister, than if you spend the, the exact same amount of time, which is so finite, not expandable, trying to figure out how to get your side hustle to bring in a hundred dollars more a month. Right, right, right. So yeah. yeah. Well, just time is money is the phrase. And as I've been studying monetary policy, debt, these kinds of things recently, not, I'm talking like gold standard. I'm just talking like the history of money, right? Like crypto yeah. and all that. That increasingly – I've been doing that for a couple of years. That increasingly showed the lie that money is or that money is a story. Before it is anything yeah. else, it is right. a story. This thing right. has value to you. I swear it, right? And right. Oh, you think so. Yes, of course. These yeah. needs are amazing. I'll give you my whole country for them. You know, Money is a story. Money is a story about debt, value, or stored work. And this idea that time is money then is like the most ludicrous thing ever. Uh, time, time is so much more than money, and money is so ultimately nothing compared to what time is as an ongoing reality. Right. Right? So time is substantially right. here, and money is not. Money is in your imagination. So right. with time, you do spend it. Even though you think you spend your money, you're, you're yeah. really spending time. And that time, I mean, it's it's got a tail end on it. I'll say that. You, could, you Google that one, find a real good blog post, the tail end. Well, and I think time, the loss of time especially, is what brings things into perspective and gives them clarity that, that money never would, right? I mean, I think if Socrates doesn't die effectively at the hands of an unjust democratic regime, kind of post-democratic oligarchic looting stage in Plato's time. Plato doesn't go on to produce what he produces because it is the loss of all that time with the master and the sense of what could have been or what should have been that energizes him to do with his finite time what he does do with it. So time is really shows you things that money can never show you. Money can provide things for your appetites, but it can't show you realities that either the understanding of the preciousness of time or the fleeting nature of time, especially death, can show you. When you look at things under the aspect of this will go away someday or you will go away someday, 
you gain kinds of clarity that you never otherwise have. That, that is why unjust regimes always pretend to be eternal. They give you no sense that anything else could ever be, whether it's in the ancient world where they were very open and they said, the emperor is a god, you must serve him. Or today, where they give you no sense that any right-thinking person could ever imagine that this trans woman is actually a man. The reason that they try to make all other things seem impossible is because they want you to believe that their opinions and their commandments are eternal, so that you have no sense of anything else being possible or true. Yeah, but at least back then, like if Darius threw the guy to the lions because of a law, like he couldn't just change the law the next week. Like it was, <laughs> it was there, right? Even I cannot change the law. I mean, I don't know. It seemed like there was a solid mythology that was working for me, at least, uh, for my generation up to this point, 40, yeah. 40 years. Mm-hmm. And I, I really am wondering about that, you know, generation theory, things like that. Yeah. Um, but someone brought this up in Discord as well. And, and kind of why or how did the American experiment stay so united for so long? And um, the idea that there were a lot less channels back then, that there was a funneled information system, I think – and the person there pointed out how it's valuable now for us that that's not the case. It allows us yeah. to di- di- dissent. And I said, yeah, exactly. It does. Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost accidental that they let the internet get, get going from the uh, Eastern Seaboard point of view. Uh, yeah. But I guess I bring that up again to focus this in on how do you clear out the time and space – to mm-hmm. figure out what the real narrative is. And then when you do figure out that the real narrative, is, as you said, is gaslighting, a term I've heard used a couple times recently too, to make it clear what I mean by gaslighting, I mean the story's changing and they're not telling you the story's changing. They're just changing it and they know they're doing this. How do you remove yourself from that? And we've said find some time alone, find some time thinking, find some time writing some notes, right? Uh, what else? Where else? Some reading. Do you, re- do you recommend going straight to Plato? I mean is that, is that what we got to do is open up Plato or how does the person start forming their own mind to have a philosophy that they choose? Is that the right word? Develop? Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I would, I would say the Bible first. And, I, and the reason that I'd say the Bible first is because the Bible combines two things that often people that notice how strange, messed up, lying modern reality is, they will often retreat into Stoicism. And Stoicism, mm-hmm. which comes after Plato uh, in various incarnations, is already, to my mind, a kind of cope because it means that you're really just dealing with yourself Hmm. rather than critiquing a regime. And I don't think it is enough to say, I have learned how to deal with everyday life under these conditions. I love that. that. I love that. Stoicism as a cope is hilarious. Yeah, (laughs) which is is to say, I mean, there are certain virtues that would be... That would be helpful that are that are propounded in in stoicism, but they're they're helpful for any, let's say, warrior society. But the retreat from criticism of the regime and especially theological critique of a regime, which you get hints of in the Republic that really flourishes in Plato and the Timaeus, but you get you know, climactically in things like Augustine's City of God, where he says the reason that this regime is collapsing, the Roman Empire in the West, is because of its idolatry. And that has consequences, right? It's sort of the, you know, Richard Weaver from the fifth century. So idolatry has consequences. Well, I mean, it's hard. This is this is where you know we, we're trying to be a show that we're open to talking to anybody about about these ideas. Like, mm-hmm. You know, to be a Christian to to learn a lot. I think of what we're talking about, and we we learn from guys who aren't Christians. And yet, what you're saying is that there's something that Christianity observes, which everybody should be able to observe without necessarily coming to the conclusion that Jesus has risen from the dead. And that is that the Bible displays a fallen state of reality that that is a fair assessment of history. And even if you want to detach God from history, you end up with the same history. And yeah. for that, you can learn from these ancient peoples quite a number of things, and maybe you need to look into whether the guy rose from the dead or not. But you made me think of you know Proverbs, which I've spent a lot of time trying to get people into recently on some other channels. Like, mm-hmm. honestly, you don't have to believe in God to get a lot out of Proverbs. That book is full of genius. The wisest guy in history that we know of, right? Some legendary guy has a book on information and how to think. Like, spend some time in there. Take some notes. You, you you can reject the part about kingdom where he says monarchy is the way to go. You, know, you don't have to accept that. Uh, you can you can 
you know, just take the part about how don't follow a fool. Huh? So anyway, is, is that what you're getting at? Is that kind of the direction you're talking about? What I'm saying is that you are you are only getting one half of the battle if you are dealing with the very serious, personally destructive things that you have been encouraged and lied into thinking were important your whole life. Hmm. That is one half of the battle. And for that, ancient Stoicism is extremely helpful in the sense that you'll find attitudes similar to Greco-Roman Stoicism in pretty much any warrior culture where you need great virtue, that is in the literal sense of the term manliness, Hmm. great, great manliness and strength in the face of overwhelming danger and death. That is one thing. The other thing that I'm saying is that without some kind of theology, your critique of the gap between what is and what should be will lead you to despair. That would be rational. And that's where somebody like James LaFond, who is a very profound and interesting man, has been led. Because he has seen things that we will perhaps talk about in the future that I am beginning to pick up on through various means about, for instance, early America. He has extended the casino narrative, which our regular listener, Elizabeth Warren, is also putting forth on Twitter. (laughs) And we appreciate Elizabeth and we welcome her to our listeners. Maybe she'll get on our Discord. But in addition to Elizabeth Warren, James LaFond has been able to see the casino in America, but he stretched it back even into the existence of labor in early America and what is essentially an enormous experiment in human trafficking, Hmm. which we call the colonial period. So that's something that we can get into. Uh, He sees You revisionist historian. It's just revisionist history. It's conspiracy theory. (laughs) I mean, this is is the show I should have said this on. I I went off on my Saturday show about Dan Carlin's recent Common Sense, which – I mean, uh, you said this last time. I got mad about Dan Carlin's common sense. Is they know that he's he's an elitist and he's not going to be in the middle. It just he keeps pretending to be right, and right. he actually will yeah. give. He yeah. gives a very valid critique of of the right. I think I agree with almost everything he says. It's just that he won't ever say anything about the other side and keeps acting like there's no other problem. There it is. Yep. Right. And so, yep. so he mm-hmm. doesn't see what you and I see. Now, here again, mm-hmm. when I say you and I see this, what you just said a moment ago, I, I had a a moment in my head. I was like, okay, so. Is what happened that clearly we were lied to the majority of our lives by the television and or the regime through the television, and now a lot of us are waking up to this? Or did I just wake up to this and you've known forever? I mean I, that's that's my question. The people that are are willing to obey no matter what and wear masks no matter what in their homes by themselves, um, <laughs> they haven't figured out – they haven't figured out – this? What is it? What is it I have to figure yeah. out? What is it I learned? Right? I'm asking you, Adam, because I think you know. Maybe yeah. you don't. But uh, I learned that I live under an unjust regime that's been lying to my my whole life. Am I the only one yeah. that learned that? Or is that what's happened to like, what, 25% of us or something? I don't know percentages, but I do know that for the lifetime of pretty much anyone who is alive in America, it has been this way, in fact. And the nostalgia that people have for for instance, Walter Cronkite, if you know the history of network television in its early days, it was by no means neutral. It's just that people's sense of what else was going on was much less before the internet. And so there was a sense in which daily life was more innocent. But uh, the idea that Americans are a docile, easily misled people goes very far back and extends to lots of other societies too. Some of the things that I'm saying were being said by people like Henry David Thoreau during the Mexican War. So we're, we're running up against some facts of human nature. The difference is that the technologies of manipulating human nature, the power of those technologies increased vastly over the past 100 years. And that enables kinds of control that simply were not possible in fourth century Athens because they couldn't get a message out to you or send somebody out to make sure you were wearing a mask when your grandma came over to the house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just, it was too big a project then. I think it still is. And we've, we've talked about that in other ways, you know, things like, uh, the, we're not conspiracy theorists in the sense that you and I do not believe there is one human group controlling everything, making this all a plan. We don't think humans are that smart. No. Uh, we don't think they're that capable. 
Uh, I want to I want to hat tip back to what you said about Lafond and his yeah. take on history, and what I said about you know studying the history of the Bible and seeing a a clear picture of what history does. No matter where else you want to go and find it, you just can find it. You can find it doing the same kinds of things: men trying to be gods and then crashing and burning pretty hard as they do it. Um, to see that you assert is to then despair. Um, although you also believe there's hope and you would attribute yeah. that to, to the Christian religion. Is there anything you can give in the Christian religion that you don't have to be a Christian to get some hope out of in this episode? Or do you, is it all about now we've, we've got you for 15 episodes. Now you got to join our religion or you're done. Well, okay. Yeah. I, I would say, I would say you're going to be led there. I was also led there. Now at the time that I was led there, I was, looking at small t truths that were not what I was being told and the gaps between what was and what should have been were evident on a personal level and observably in the people around me. And because of a certain blessed isolation of being the only mountain person within my friend group, I had a sense of loneliness that turned out to be helpful because it enabled me to have time and space to think. Hmm. When you start to notice enough small T truths, you will be led to look to see if there is a large T truth that could connect those truths together. And that is why Plato leaves political life. His youthful ambition was to be a statesman. He realizes that there is not a political solution to every political problem Hmm. that some political problems grievous as they are, whether it's vastly increased murder rates in the U S in 2020 or whatever it is that you're thinking of. Some of those things proceed forth from evils and from lies and from a capital L liar that all of that is much bigger than just a political solution, or here's a way to engage your state representative. Now, again, so, I'm gonna, can I jump yeah. in again and talk philosophically here? I'm trying to yeah. keep this – I'm trying to be – I don't want to advocate for the devil exactly, but will any monotheism do? Um, no, no, it won't because the, the problem is that other monotheisms on offer, whether you're talking about the, the attempt that Egypt once made to be monotheistic, but it didn't last very long, or you're talking about Islam or Judaism – The problem with them is that they will always identify their regime and truth. And the critical thing here is that Christianity uniquely does not identify a regime, even one run and occupied, staffed, populated entirely by professing Christians that cannot be identified with the regime or the kingdom in a different Germanic word term. The kingdom of God is not the same thing as the kingdom of men. And that basic distinction is something that anyone who is seeking small t truth is going to discern. Christianity can explain to you why that is and how that is and what you should hope for. But anyone who's looking for that is going to discern that something else should be. That's why, for instance, the Republic is a utopia. It is a nowhere place because Plato doesn't know where such a commonwealth, such a rightly functioning polity would come from. He just wants it to exist. You're telling me Trump ran as a utopian? Hilarious. <laughs> Trump ran as a TV nostalgia utopian. I still am not sure that the whole thing wasn't just another episode of The Apprentice and that they planned it. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, really, I mean, they shielded him into the Republican <laughs> primary to begin with. And I, I don't know. I just they got us all to stick things in our arms and, to, you know, take these experimental drugs. I it just seems like more of the island to me. But then again, I, you know, I'm practically a monk at this point. So uh, <laughs> so it, I'll say this, though. Yeah. Being more uh, alone in my my wizard's tower, uh, studying the proverbs and the psalms of mine ancient religion, I have begun to prize the group coherence of my congregation above just about anything else. Yeah, right. Even things right. I might have stepped in before to correct, which I'm not going to say I haven't been correcting people. It's the when and the where and the why and the how. Yeah. Right. Because the group coherence around the right things, I'm going to insist, around the right things, is uh, essential now. Yeah, it is. And I think 
if you are a pastor or you are somebody who talks or writes and people listen to you, this is especially important because I think one of the major differences between Socrates and Plato is that Plato understands how to create disciples. Socrates, by force of argument and by force of personality, gets people attached to him. Plato, however, is successful in changing the history of the world through knowing how to disciple people. So not only what to say and how to say it, which can be done in seclusion and is probably usually best done in seclusion. If you have no quiet in your mind, you really don't have thoughts. You have reactions of more you're defending. Or, you're you know. defending the whole time. Right, right. That is kind of the, the cancer of internet speed for the brain. But Plato also understands how to teach and to let go, which is a very high art. I mean, it's the art of being a father or a mother. Hmm. Um, you have to both be an authority and know when to cede authority more progressively as the child matures. And Plato knew how to do that, which is why he withdraws from the state in order to pursue truth, since truth and the state are not the same thing. But his disciple, Aristotle, trains Alexander, who then conquers the inhabited world a couple generations later. So Roaring um, drunk along the way, some other issues. Might not have all been philanthropic, but, you know. No, I don't think it was philanthropic, but what I'm saying is that when people think in short-term ways and sort of like Twitter mentions speed ways, they mistake what would actually be valuable in 20 years, let alone in 60 years. There's too much. You can't even yeah, you can't right. even begin to discern right. what you should keep and what you should not keep. Yeah, I, I don't know that I have an easy answer for that again. Uh, but well, looking at your notes here, just for a, <laughs> trying to find a word, atomization of all kinds. Okay, yeah. so I've started uh, putting down some notes on what might become my next book. It, it'll be less of like whatever in the past, sort of a collected thoughts on discerning uh, in the white noise, really, and. One of the things I'm wrestling with is as I've moved out of computer storage, I stopped using computers for most of my information storage. Uh, I do it on paper instead. I, I'm trying to pull from my computer storage stuff I had thought valuable, things I spent a lot of time moving around. I spent years moving them from like Evernote to some other thing. I've, yeah. I've went through so many different things and moving stuff. And, and I go back and I'm looking at them now and atomization is the word. The information is – Random, ad hoc, and unconnected. And uh, just just to throw a, a real interesting sponge on the paper thing, the value of the smart note theory is that information should always naturally dock, and paper allows it to do so better than digital would be my my thesis or my hypothesis. Right? One mm -hmm. does not have to take religion into account on this. This is just an idea. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I have found as I go back and engage computers, having been away from them, that atomization is just – maybe that's just because everything's happening that way. But atomization seems to be highly, highly difficult to avoid, yeah. the, the, the yeah. fracturing of the information itself. Well, you're, you're also – you're educated for atomization even within organizations like the church where you should be educated to be a sort of rounded human being and historically you were. Even the church has kind of seeded its own way of educating all the way up to the level that I teach on there is rampant atomization. And what that means is that all the parts of things that you do are either extremely narrow and related, or they're broad and unrelated. No one has broad related knowledge that would be useful throughout life. Hmm. And what that does is that also isolates people from each other. Because I would say, for instance, if you look both at the Bible and at ideas about wisdom surrounding the time and the place of the Bible, you're dealing with approaches to life. It really is that broad. It's as broad as the term philosophy originally was. And if we're going to spend a bunch of time out in a grove of trees, which is where Plato teaches the grove of academe, that's where academia comes from. If, if you're going to talk there, then you need time you need quiet, but you also need the freedom to relate ideas to each other broadly, not simply for the sake of producing a book or a talk or something 
heaven forbid in Plato's mind, something that you could sell. <laughs> That's a whole other, Plato and money is a whole other thing. But what, what he wants to do is relate things so that you become a different kind of a person. Because the focus there ultimately is on what kind of a person is produced by philosophy or in biblical terms, wisdom. And that's not really measurable by an educational bureaucracy. And it also is ongoing. And it involves relating emotion and thought and time and all of these things and experience together so that you make the best sorts of decisions and are the best sort of person for the family you're in, the place you're in, etc. And people are not educated for that anymore. Not even when they look back at the past and they say, okay, the American Revolution was prosecuted by a bunch of people that had classics degrees, essentially, or less. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, they can't pull anything off, right? So but this um, is the Weinstein brothers contention, though, which is that the average man right now is far more equipped than he realizes or that the uh, the regime in, say, academia will admit. And if he would step away from his entertainments and his gluttony for half a moment, spend some time doing what we're suggesting, he'd find he'd like be doing calculus. He didn't even realize he wanted to. And now he's going to go solve something that no one else was even thinking about because of his particular lifestyle story, history, and all the things he's absorbed. What I've, again, found, I can't believe how much I know, Adam. I cannot believe how much information is coming out of my head. And some of it's from the amount of movies that I just imbibe. Some of it's from day school education. But you know, the things that have captured my, my, uh, my imagination, like uh, you know, studying physics, um, uh, going into a cosmology uh, from a sort of a math and philosophical approach. Uh, I would not have been doing that while I was trying to mod out Fallout 4. I was too busy trying to mod out Fallout 4. And uh, there's a real difference in this way of living. Yeah. Uh, the satisfaction, however, is very similar. It just doesn't seem to have the letdown that, that Fallout 4 always had with it. And uh, But again, you each person's going to have to step away long enough to figure out, like if all this stuff you ate for the last however long you've been alive – like some of it you really liked, but the longer you've been eating more, the harder it's going to be to know what that is. And you got to let it, what, ruminate, regurgitate. Uh, you're going to be surprised not only what you know, but what you want to know. Like, so now I've got these things I can't wait to know, and I've got this desire to go and study them. And I'm like, oh, I got to do it real fast. I, you can't. I got, I got to, it's going to take me 10 years to learn Hebrew. <laughs> yeah, right? You can't just yeah, go do it. Yeah, but yeah. that, that kind of inspiration is um, definitely not what I was on in the Blue Light Special Land. Yeah. Not at all. Right, right. I also think that not only do you get knowledge that gets lost when people are mostly being entertained, you also get knowledge that people recognize should be there that simply isn't there. And I think that things that are noticeable generational differences, not, not really between yours and mine, but let's say between both of ours and our grandparents' generation, like public behavior or manners are not nearly so superficial as people think they are. It means that a lot of the time that you spend is spent thinking about how you relate to other people and learning when to speak and when not to speak and how to relate to somebody who's older than you are or somebody who's younger. And all of that means that you're devoting a lot of your time to thinking about how to get along with people you see all the time. Yeah, which you're going to need if you turn off the TV because you're going to be right. thinking about how good it is to have the TV turned off. You're going to tell everybody and then you're going to realize, I can't actually. That would be very annoying to do this right now. I have to think about <laughs> how to share this idea slowly and over time. Yeah? How about starting a podcast? I'll do that. Yeah, that's huh? right. I mean, right. setting aside your own take though. Yeah. Acquiescing. This gets back to uh, the group dynamic and recognizing yeah. you're part of an organic group. And so, you know, if you, and I, I mean this as a really good example, when you find something new that's valuable to you, you tend to become an apostle of it, an evangelist for it. You want, you want others to have it too. And there's a way this is really evil, I think, where we're trying to justify our lies to ourselves sometimes. But yeah. in a positive way, we do want to share things that we find. And yet, that's just it. When you find things that are radical, like, you live under an, a regime that you don't trust anymore. Like how you set aside that take in order to deal with your neighbor is pretty important, actually. Yeah. That's what tolerance yeah, yeah, yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. No, right? that's, that's a, it's a really good example because I think the idea of takes being the way that knowledge is delivered and also processed such that like that's what I'm looking for and that's what I'm looking to have is very similar to the problem with thinking about depth of information as, as a rabbit hole. 
That is, depth is abnormal and superficiality is normal in knowledge. In the same way, we're encouraged to think of a take as what is valuable rather than coherence or <laughs> truth necessarily. <laughs> if the take is you know spicier than the last one I heard, then I like it better than the last one I heard. Well, confirmation bias makes it so you like it better the last one you heard no matter what. That's kind of the problem with that thing. You study that one, you don't have a choice. That's the last thing you heard is going to move you more. It's just a yeah. fact. Unless you yeah. spend a lot of time going around. That's why the, the time to think on it is valuable. It's because you want to ruminate on it, chew it up, and maybe get rid of it. Have some time for something else to spit it out. Get confirmed right. convictions that won't change. All that. But yeah, right. Google that. Confirmation bias. That's, that sucker is scary. Scary. And it's, all, it's also the case that a lot of things that don't seem true at first prove true. Hmm. And the person who's saying them to you may simply have a vastly different set of life experiences that enable him to see that in a way that you don't right now. So if James LaFon tells me something about violence, I'm going to listen because of his personal acquaintance with it that I don't have because I haven't spent my life in Baltimore since the 1970s, you know. So there's there's a way in which you can you can shortcut some of the learning process by listening to those that have had vastly different amounts of time to process certain truths and something that seems obvious to you at a certain place in your life will come to prove valueless at a different time and you can figure that out if you actually listen to somebody who's already at that different time this is this is like nyan the magical power of reading Right now, I'm going to ask you a question that's been on my mind and okay. it might seem kind of random and weird, but I think I think it might help listeners as well. And I'll just preface it by telling the story again of the time I drove into Fort Wayne to visit you while you were at school. And I came in. It had to be like late on a Tuesday night. So it really wasn't a weekend, but it felt like a weekend night and because it, it was dark outside. And I come into your apartment and you're like the, the kitchen table's right there. And you've got this book that's got to be four inches wide open and you're in the middle of it. And you're just reading this like tome on, on you know, I'm like, what's up, man? You got there's no one. You just you're in your house in your kitchen reading. Really? I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. But so I know that's like how you've always been and that that is normal for you. I like to read, but I've always had a, a fight relationship with reading. I won't yeah. go into that. Yeah. But what okay. I've been struggling with now is this. There are three different ways that I read. Well, maybe four. One is skimming very quickly. Uh, which mm -hmm. I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about just kind of reading generally word for word. Of course, you'll skip a bad paragraph or whatever. The difference between that, between highlighting while you read and what I do when I highlight when I read is I'll go back and I'll re-highlight and then reread as I should highlight and reread those key points I want to remember. So it's like a way of reading twice, but not the whole book. And then you have the smart note idea, which is that you take notes while you go. You don't highlight at all, but you actually process, translate, and elaborate as you go, which leads to pretty bounteous production if you ever want to try it. Yeah. I want to know what you do. Okay. With nonfiction, I highlight and I'll read, I'll read a book once. If I read a book twice, it's probably not nonfiction. Because with fiction, I don't highlight anything. I just read and I let it go. And I read, there was a long time where Plato's Republic psyched me out totally on the, the lying nature of fiction. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Because, of his, because of his critique of the poets and how the poets are so prone to lying and no one can tell the difference. So that's Plato's media ecology. His poets are e poets are evil well, I've been, liars. I've been, hey, I've gone back to my own first principle <laughs> building recently. I told you I rejected yeah. modernism, and I've been on like, is it ethical to write fiction? And I'm a fiction writer, man. I've been yeah. on it, and I think it is, but I, I, I'm not going to yeah. be thrown off by Plato asking the question because I think it's a very good question. It's a good question. It's a, very good, it's question. a good. It's a good question. And after a while, I over I overcame that because I recognized that there are. There are forms of beauty and therefore forms of truth that are only accessible in fiction, mm -hmm. uh, especially in poetry. Well, that symbolism. Poetry, yeah, if poetry is a particular kind of beauty that prose can never match. But even in addition to that, the novel contains kinds of beauty that history can't match. So that's fine. And uh, so I read in about equal proportions and... Fiction, I just let kind of wash over me, but I read every word. With nonfiction, I will spend a lot of time before I actually read it, deciding whether or not it's worthwhile reading. 
And then I, I do read every word. I probably read it more quickly because the words aren't as well written and I highlight. So that first thing I was talking about of kind of reading it quickly, glancing through it, uh, mm-hmm. table of contents, some chapter headings, a couple pages pop out here and there. That's what I was that's, – that's what you were just saying. That's your deciding if you're going to read it? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you go through and you do the highlight thing kind of like I, I was doing. Okay. Do you ever go and then just read it without highlights? Have you tried that? Just straight in? Um, I, I – <laughs> You mean nonfiction? Yeah, yeah. It just, just here's here's my thought. My thought is, and I don't want to speed up as in profit. What mm-hmm. I want to do is do the most organic and valuable thing for you know the the human. And I don't want to assume that highlighting is that because that's a fairly recent invention. So mm-hmm. I'm just curious what the power of straight reading is. Like instead of um, trying to highlight, just read the nonfiction book. And unless I'm trying to like you know do operations after this or something. Um, mm-hmm. Whether or not that might not be a, a better way to learn, and I've been asking that question myself, hence my question to you and our complete tangent of the conversation. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I will, I, I don't highlight in books that are somebody else's and or really, really old books. It just seems like a sort of defilement, and that's mystical, but that's that's all I can say. It's all right, but but I'll I'll be reading something from you know 1872, and someone in 1881 wrote all over the thing, so. Which is kind of cool. Yeah, taking notes on <laughs> the margins is a whole other approach that I know some people do. Uh, I I can't read my handwriting well enough to really tarnish a book too often that way. I want to just – you mentioned uh, the lie idea that fiction is a lie. And the, the solution I've come to, this is kind of as an etymologist, is that all the words that are written are lies. Like insofar as man has written them. Uh, where God inscribes with his own finger on stone, I think you can call that one true probably, right? But the the idea that I'm going to take this scratch on paper, this sign or symbol, and that it will then be read by me, uh, interpreted, translated, divined, I don't care what word you say, understood, that enables confusion, basically. It places confusion there. And so even the best, most authentic history will have, as we know, a bias, uh, a victor who tells the story, a way of seeing it, things that are left out that could have been there, and so forth. And so in that way, all of it really is a form of symbolism. You can take it all as being lies. You can take it all as symbolism. So I, I said it was a lie, but let's just say it's not a lie. All writing is a, is a symbol of some other thing, whether it's of a sound or of a you know a, an idea like, like hieroglyphics would be. Uh, we've talked about how alphabetic language is taking that to like the exponential level. It compounds the power of the language and all these kinds of things. So because of that, uh, because the language itself on the paper must always be in the realm of symbolism and thus always is, in fact, a form of man's story. So man tells a story that's a poem that happens to not be like rhyming, uh, but is epic and at length a picture that symbolizes something he could have said very quickly, like, I like truth. I don't like falsehood. Like he could have said that, but instead he tells a picture or he says a story or whatever. He uses archetypes to paint it all together. And that's where then it's either all lies or it's not all lies, just truths in the mouths of liars, which is a a different, different thing. So what do you think? That was a lot. You look like you were trying to follow it. (laughs) Uh, I, 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 I guess it depends on what the word symbol means. I think Hmm. my philosophy of language is that, I don't think language is actually as encoded or difficult to understand as a lot of modern thinkers about the Bible and lots of other things think. That's why if you want to study Homer, you need to learn Homeric Greek so you can get as close as possible. Amen. And when you get close, I think that what I think that what the the reason that people listening to this that can write should write, whether it's fiction or nonfiction is so that you can communicate things that otherwise are not are not being said because people go on having lives even when those lives are poorly or not at all interpreted by the myths that they're being told so i mean symbol in the sense that it represents something else sure but it is real and it represents something real in the sense that homer is representing the tragedy of the Greeks going to battle for Helen, for instance. It's probably helpful if I say that I'm really looking at this with written language and audible language not being assumed to be the same thing, that that written language is more on that symbolic 
side of things. Um, now you reach a point as a reader where like, I don't look at the symbols when I see the word read, I just know it, right? It's there's something, again, there's something powerful there. I would even say God created there, uh, in language writing is our attempt to capture that and hold it. So it never changes. And we want to take the babble and tame it. And that's where I, I think the complexity comes in. So I completely agree with you that language is much simpler when you just speak and hear it. I learned so yeah. much Greek from, you know, Tom, uh, just because mm-hmm. he like showed me that it had the roots that English had in it. I was like, wow, why didn't they tell us that at the seminary? That would, that would have helped. Just a touch. <laughs> yeah. Man. Yeah. Well, the the rise of writing is connected, at least in the ancient Near East, with with the rise of state power and with divinized kings. So I, I don't really think that that's a coincidence at all in the sense that abstraction is always helpful to a regime that wants to maintain itself. Speaking with people you personally know about things that you have actually observed or, or they have observed is both more powerful. That is that I trust my friends more than a writer who's been dead 400 years, even if I love his books. I know them better than I know him. <laughs> but also that I think that uh, speaking is the original and best form of language. It is the native way of language and uh, is should be, I think, prized over all others. Also in this sense that certainly biblically, uh, speech is superior to writing. Right. And so, so can I push this back to that conversation? Yeah. So I am not claiming that speech is symbolic. I'm merely claiming that writing is symbolic. So it's not that mm-hmm. I made an etymological argument. I'm going to call it a media ecology argument, but it is intertwined with etymology because you cannot distinguish the meaning of words once they begin to be written down. It changes the history of them, right? They, they begin to then take on new meanings over time that we can trace, mm-hmm. whereas what we're talking about audible language is always going to be limited to the time in which it exists as a vernacular. It's, it mm-hmm. cannot be kind of captured. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> so my, my own uh, personal favorite things here, but what we really want to do then is help people find virtue, discover the virtue that they want to build, ruminate. Mm-hmm on works, great works, and friends that share those virtues and then recognize that that's their source of strength for tomorrow as opposed to well, you know, societal validation, you said in your, your little note there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how do you know you're not crazy when only you and your friend who are doing a weird podcast called Two White Guys think that the regime is like has enslaved us all and uh, everyone else is going about life as normal? I mean, how do you, how do you validate that? Yeah, I mean, the, the notion of validation is something that uh, has been shrunken drastically compared to the past. So if you think about go to a graveyard, and preferably, especially if you live in an older part of the country, this is easy to do. You can see graves from colonial times all the way down to today. They have vastly different things on them. One of the things that you'll notice is that the farther back you go, the less you actually learn about the person even if the, the writing is all completely still legible, that what's being signaled to, to you about that person who died in 1802 is that he was a Christian, generally speaking, is what's going to be told to you. And uh, maybe there will be, especially in New England, some admonition for you to consider death as well. Now, if there is anything about what he believed or what he was into, it's usually going to be his activities or something like that. You are, you have been given a very shrunken and small and narrow sense of what a human life is for. And that is very useful to the regime in the sense that it encourages you to seek validation from the very temporary forms that it offers, whether money or clout on Twitter or whatever it is that you're looking for. And your sense of validation is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. So, I mean, at this point, it doesn't even need to come from your job because it could just be like likes or upvotes or something. So you're not really gaining anything, but it feels good and it's very temporary. But that's what I think a lot of people are not buying, right? This is just it. Yeah. Uh, but then that's what I'm asking for as well. So where where is the alternate validation? If it's not yeah. the likes on my channel, if it's not how many views I'm getting on my show – I mean, the answer for me, yeah. I think you're going to say this is is children, right? Your family, um, your wife, if you don't have any children, your husband, if you don't have any children, you know, your parents. But uh, to to take a moment and realize that whatever you think you're doing, 
they're there, alive, and well, they should bring you joy in theory. I mean, in theory, you should go to your kids and like feel pretty good about that. I, I mean, that's, yeah, that's I, 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 I have them, right? I, I think that I think that understanding death is the most fruitful way to get there, and that's why I think the death of Socrates is so pivotal in the personal case of Plato, but also in the case of having children or anything else, you understand what your life is actually for when you understand that it ends. If you don't understand that, or if you think that the regime or this regime or your regime or your takes or your ideology or whatever it is, uh, will last forever, or if accepted by enough people will be, you know, will endure forever then you have really no sense of what's valuable or what you should devote your time to. And you're going to end up wasting much of your time, if not your life. What I'm saying is that when you understand that there are limitations, and this is going to be crucial in talking about nature in the next episode, the understanding of limitations, especially the ultimate limitation of death, is the, is the mother of really everything good about human effort because it gives you a sense of what is possible very clearly, as well as a sense of what is impossible and therefore fruitless very clearly, whether fruitless in what you're doing or fruitless in what somebody else is doing, especially your opponent. So that sense of limitation is completely necessary. And that's true across cultures. I mean, it's, it's the recommendation that Odin makes in the Havamal in Norse paganism is to understand that one day everything will go away except the name that you have earned. So whether you have children or don't, whether they are carrying on your legacy or not, whether you write or you don't, what you do with what you have uh, is crucial. And understanding that one day you won't have anything to do anymore is is more crucial than anything else. Is it memento morte? Memento? Yeah, memento mori. Yeah, mori, remember that mori. you will die. Yeah, this that's the Latin way. I mean, all ancient cultures had to face it. We live at a time where we've been convinced we don't have to face it until, right. I guess, later we face it in golf or something like that. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I knew I didn't buy that one pretty early. Yeah. But I still was comfortable working for the weekend, put it that way. And, well, God, like you said, you, you know, end up wasting your life. I don't know want to call it wasted. I've, I've done a lot of good things, but I think I've just watched too many things I haven't done. And it does leave, uh, well, a lack of, lack of breath, I guess is what I would say. And, yeah. uh, I'm looking forward to breathing more and, and sitting less for however long I got left on this place. And in that regard, again, looking to find future strength within the group. You who are a listener to this show, you're listening because you think that there is something going on with whatever regime we're under right now. Uh, You think that the condition of the world is such that you must pay attention to those who take advantage of power and that you can learn a thing or two from those who fall into that power in the past. So uh, thank you for joining us in this uh, crazy crusade to uh, what? Uh, Find a way through the madness. Um, one more thing, Adam, from your notes yeah. to kind of bring it home. Um, I, and, unless you want to go on to LaFond one more time, we could do that too. But no, you that's said, fine. you know, I'll cultivate people, not ladders. Uh, what are the ladders? I'm not, I don't think people can figure out who the people are. What do you mean by don't cultivate yeah. the ladders you're being provided? I mean, I took my check from the feds when they gave it to me recently. I, mean, I didn't <laughs> give it back. I'll pay them my taxes well, that's, later. That's not a ladder. A ladder would be working for a hedge fund. That's a real ladder. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. your, uh, your UBI payment is not a ladder. The ladders vary by who you are. Um, the ladder is bigger and better if you're black than if you're white. Uh, if you're trans than if you're cisgendered, you, you, know the, you know the story there. But the ladders exist. One of the ladders is if you politically denounce your parents, for instance. So the ladders change from time to time, but they were there back in the 80s too. And the ladders always offer you something other than what you have, which is enticing. And uh, the ladders also offer you the chance to sacrifice human beings in exchange for something else. And that I do mean. You mean relationships, not like to the volcano gods usually. No, I actually I actually do mean that in in many cultures Hmm. um, Hmm. that the, the practice of human sacrifice is always for somebody else's ladder where, you know, for the ancient Carthaginians, it is worth a child or two. And uh, this is, I I think, the ladder of a certain kind of independence is the reason that we murder children in this country. 
So the value of ladders over human beings is uh, ubiquitous and it's what's sold to us all the time. And if we're going to have a future that is not as bleak as James LaFond lays out in the American sun, it's going to be because we have groups of people, not just lone individuals, but groups of people who are worth more to each other than anything else. I got much to add. That's so well said. A brief history part with two white guys. Uh, next week, we're going into nature. Hat tip on that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's right. Just straight up nature. Like, yeah, like you're, you're going to be a druid uh, with a big stick and a panther. And well, you're going to talk, talk about I'm going to talk about Pacific trash. I'm going to talk about birds flying into wind turbines. We're going to talk about nature. Ooh, 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 the eagles flying in the wind turbines. That's some yeah. good stuff. Looking forward. Yeah. To, so, so we're going green, but then we're not. Next time on A Brief History <sighs> Bar with two white guys. <laughs>